Now, it is time for the reading of God's Word. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of His Word? Today, from the Gospel of Luke, as we're looking at the life, the ministry of Jesus throughout this entire year, we're, we're coming to the end. And uh, last week, we answered the question, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died because it was the preordained plan of God. That was his mission was to come and to die. But the story does not end there. From the Gospel of Luke, starting at verse 1 of chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Father God, may you honor the reading of your words today with hearing, with understanding, Lord, with the work of your Holy Spirit to convince those who perhaps still disbelieve, to comfort and assure those who perhaps still doubt, and Lord, to show each of us gathered in this place, in these moments, those who are watching online now or later, I pray that the work of your Spirit will, will imprint into our hearts and our minds very deeply the reality of this truth upon which the entire gospel is founded. And that our lives will be changed. Our lives are not to be oriented around what comes through on our news feeds. It is not to be oriented around what our culture values and esteems in this moment. It is to be valued and built around the truth that you rose from the dead and that you are alive today. And because you defeated death, you remain victorious over all. And that allegiance to you in this world, in the darkness of this place, is what truly brings light into our lives and into the world. Lord, I ask, especially at this time of year as we get to celebrating your birth, the birth that led to your death, I pray for a, a recommitment on each of our parts to a greater allegiance to you, greater devotion in living out your commands and your teachings. Lord, of drawing closer to you and not being distracted by the whims and the cares and the concerns of this world. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself, 
as Jesus is lifted up. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we look upon him and see him in his glory, in his power, in his majesty, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love for each of us. These things we pray in his name. The name of our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Christianity, uh, in general, seems to be always in the news, and there's a, there's a resurgent um, uh, conversation happening in our society uh, regarding political things. You may or may not be familiar with the terms Christian nationalism, and it's what exactly role, what, what is the role that faith plays in a society and a nation like the United States and others, and it's always a very heated discussion with lots of opinions and very different sides, and there's a lot of maligning that goes on on both sides, and I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm just here to talk about something that is an important truth. Jesus is inescapable in our society There's a wide variety of opinions. There's many different groups who claim to believe in him and follow him and advocate for him. There's no shortage of opinions and differences of opinion when it comes to Jesus. For many in our society, unfortunately, Jesus and following him and Christianity and Christian truth and Christian doctrine has been attached to certain political things or cultural things or ethical things or philosophical things. And yes, Jesus does impact all of those realms because, well, he defeated death. He lived and taught in such a way that when he died and then rose again, everything is going to remain untouched because of who he is and what he has done. So yes, Jesus' ethics and morals and teachings, they all impact things on various levels, but that's not the point. Christianity cannot be reduced to a belief system. It cannot be reduced to an ethical system, a moral system, a philosophical system, or any kind of philosophical endeavor. Those are lots of things we can discuss and and have some disagreements about, but at the end of the day, the only question that must be answered is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? After 30-something years in ministry and lots of conversations with those who disbelieve and those who doubt and those who struggle with things, it's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to get in those conversations like, oh, you Christians are just trying to push your morality on the world. And it's, it's easy to get into debates about the ethics and the morality and the philosophy of things and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? As I've gotten really tired of those discussions over 30 plus years, I now just cut to the chase with people who want to argue. I don't argue anymore because here's the deal. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If he did not, and if a person I'm talking to doesn't, doesn't believe that, then I'm like, we have no basis for discussion. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, why do you even care? Why do you care what he said? Why do you care what his followers are trying to do? It is completely irrelevant to you. Just dismiss it. Go on your way. Peace. Be warm and be filled and enjoy life. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything he said must be wrestled with. 
It must be digested. It must be, it must be in a way dealt with for us to take seriously what he said and to contemplate it. We may not agree. We may not understand. We may not obey. But if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is important. Tim Keller, a fantastic uh, pastor and author who's now semi-retired, but he still does a lot of writing and a lot of lecturing. He has written a number of fantastic books, and one of them is The Reason for God. He puts it so nicely and so succinctly. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's what the real issue is. And for for people in your lives, as you're talking to them, they may be opposed to certain aspects of Christianity, Christian morality, Christian ethics, Christian philosophy, you know, things like that. What it comes back to is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Once we settle that truth, we can engage in a discussion, perhaps even some spirited debate on what that means. But if Jesus did not, then it's all a fruitless exercise, and it's also futile, as even the Apostle Paul says. But here's the deal. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most historically verifiable event of the ancient world. Virtually all other events of history in that time, before and even after, within hundreds of years, that we, in our day and age, accept as valid there is more firsthand eyewitness accounts from the resurrection of Jesus than there is for virtually any other person, figure, or event that we accept as actually happening in that time. The real question for us becomes whether or not we want to really deal with it because it has implications for our lives, does it not? The tomb was empty. And this is such a huge deal. Some of the modern critiques will be, oh, well, that's just a myth. It's just a story. It's a cleverly devised scandal or a scheme or a swindle. Because even back then, the the followers of Jesus knew that they could make a quick buck by inventing a religion. Yeah, by making a quick quick buck by being hunted down like criminals and being executed, living their best life now, so to speak, while on the run from the Jewish authorities and, yes, even Roman authorities. The issue of resurrection is so important because it is so, it is so new. It was never a part of any other religious belief system No religion, no culture, no cultural mythology of the time had a concept of returning to life as portrayed and proclaimed by Jesus' followers. It was simply not a repackaging of ancient myths or modifications of other belief systems. And if you go looking on the internet, you'll find a lot of people who advocate those positions, but they miss so many points. 
Things like this in Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, the entire worldview of Greek thinking people was that the body itself was evil. That anything material was a substandard. It was not the ideal. The ideal was to be set free from the body. Because even as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, the Greek philosophers understood that the body, because of its fragility, because of its frailty, and because of the, the almost uncontrollable self-destructive impulses that we all have, this, the body itself is evil. The good within is encased in this shell that needs to be shed in order to achieve enlightenment and truth and purity and all of those kinds of things. Salvation in the Greek mind was liberation or release from the body. The concept of, of having the body raised from the dead and still being stuck with it in any kind of material form was not a blessing. It was a curse to the Jewish mind. Foolishness is how the Apostle Paul put it. In some of the Eastern theologies like Hinduism and Buddhism, once again, the goal is release from the body, not to remain attached to it. Reincarnation, reincarnation by the way, is a completely different concept than resurrection. They're very incompatible, by the way, as well. And in that philosophy of reincarnation, it's not a blessing, it is a curse. It is a punishment, and it is an ongoing punishment. So you see, the Christian message of someone coming back to life and having a body that is in some form, has some kind of material, corporeal aspect to it, the, the, the Greeks and the Eastern minds would reject that outright as anything desirable whatsoever. Didn't want that, they didn't desire that. None of their cultural mythologies embraced that concept. It was truly foreign. Jewish theology, except for one small sectarian group called the Sadducees, did include belief in a resurrection. But their theology was that resurrection would happen for God's people at the end of time. And it would coincide with the resurrecting of, of nature and earth and the world itself. There would be a, a, a recreation, so to speak. And then the people who were faithful to the covenant would also be re, uh, resurrected to enjoy life in that new world. That was their concept. But it was corporate. And it was eschatological, far at the end of the world. Nothing about the here and now, and certainly nothing about individuals being raised to life. So when Jesus comes along and preaches that he is going to rise from the dead, you can understand why the disciples did not believe it, did not grasp it, did not understand it, even after it happened. Their mind had been so trained that there, there's no category. It is such a new truth that it took them a long time, and they had to be convinced of it. We saw that in our part of our scripture reading this morning. But the fact is this, the tomb was empty. So what other alternate explanations are there? The tomb was and it still is empty. Some say, oh, the body was stolen, stolen and hidden away all these ages. 
Stolen by whom? The Jews, Jewish leaders wouldn't steal the body. The body was their, was their smoking gun. That everything Jesus said was ridiculous and unimportant. Just another failed Messiah. The Romans were certainly not going to steal it because the Jewish people were headaches enough. And they did not want any more headaches. And they did not need rabble-rousers. They did not need controversy. They did not need the people getting worked up. So if the Romans aren't going to steal it, the Jewish authorities aren't going to steal it, that leaves the disciples to steal it. Shell-shocked, grief-stricken, cowering in hiding because they could not stand and face the soldiers and the crowds who crucified Jesus and called for Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' entourage, his posse, his men fled in abject fear and in humiliation. They were not trained Navy SEALs. They did not hide behind a locked door to formulate a plan, standing around a table like we see in every big action movie with the big map and this detailed, intricate plan of how they were going to launch an insurgency attack against a Roman cohort of guards who were guarding the tomb. They were in no position mentally, emotionally. In their, in their eyes, their lives were in danger. They fled in fear and they were certainly not going to go up against a Roman contingent of guards. So the idea of the body being stolen just does not seem to fly. Some have said, oh, you know, this is all just a big misunderstanding. See, the body was put in the wrong tomb. Happens all the time. Babies in hospitals get the wrong tags. Bodies at the morgue may get mistagged. We just have, we just have missing Jesus. We don't have resurrected Jesus. It was put in the wrong or the unknown tomb. You see, within a few weeks, about five to six weeks of the resurrection, Jesus' disciples were no longer cowering in fear. They were out in public. They were in the temple courts. They were publicly proclaiming in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus has come back to life. We have seen him. We have spoken with him. We have eaten with him. We have been commissioned by him. He is alive. We can't believe it ourselves, but we've seen it. So this is what has happened. And as they were turning the world upside down with this message, the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities, if there had been a mix-up, they would have been able to track down where it went because, see, Jesus was not, was not buried as a commoner. He was not put in a mass grave. He was put in the tomb of a very wealthy, very prominent member of the Jewish ruling council. And it's not like there were thousands of choices for Jesus to get lost. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, because of his standing in the community, was a specialized tomb. It was hewn out of rock. And just like today, you know, wealth has its privileges. Only certain people of certain standings got to be buried in those kinds of places. 
It also says in the scripture that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was never used before. No other family members had been buried there. They didn't, they didn't pile in the corpses, so it would have been fairly new. It would have been fairly unused. It would have been untouched. Therefore, it would have been well marked. And besides that, we have witnesses. Joseph was most likely a witness of his tomb being sealed with the body of Jesus inside. Another member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who helped prepare the body of Jesus for burial, was probably there witnessing it as well. And then we see in the scriptures that there's actually some of the women of Jesus' entourage, a couple of the Marys who stayed to the very bitter end. And as they saw Jesus be placed in the tomb and as they saw the, the, the servants come out and they saw the stone being rolled in front, my guess is that they lingered there for quite a while, overcome with grief and disbelief. If it had been put in the wrong tomb, the Jewish authorities would have very quickly and very easily produced the body of Jesus. But they could not because it was not there. Some also say he didn't really die. He just basically went into a coma or he became unconscious due to the severity of his injuries. They say um, he was actually, so therefore he didn't die, so he was actually never buried in the first place. It was all, once again, all a big misunderstanding. They say if he did, <clears throat> if he did uh, go into the burial chamber, he recovered, and then he was able to work his way out of the tomb. People actually postulate this and believe this. It's absolute nonsense. Because Roman crucifixion squads were tasked with one thing in life. They had one job to do. And they did it exceptionally well. They killed people. And when they killed people, they were dead dead. Not mostly dead. <laughs> dead dead, no questions asked. As a further point on that, the stone would have, rolled, would have weighed between one to two tons Nobody recovering from injuries would have been able to move that. Even with, with, with certain uh, leverages in place, it would take a, a, a core group of men to be able to roll the stone back. In the actual wording of scriptures, almost like the stone was blasted away, by the way. It wasn't just dislodged and Jesus was able to, to squeak through a small opening. The stone was completely moved out of place. Once again, Tim Keller, the Christian view of resurrection, absolutely unprecedented in history, sprang up full-blown immediately after the death of Jesus. There was no process or development. There was no need to call councils and form study committees to explore how, what this could mean. All of a sudden, the apostles started preaching, we've seen Jesus alive. We are eyewitnesses. His followers said that their beliefs did not come from debating and discussing they were just telling others what they had seen themselves. No one has come up with any plausible alternative to this claim. And it was the testimony from eyewitnesses. That's what we base this on. Jesus' ministry elevated the least of these. He ministered to the outcast, the broken, the dismissed, the societally marginalized. 
Nearly all of his disciples were kind of in that category. Some of them were very successful businessmen, and they were very competent and capable individuals, but they were Galileans. Galileans carried a social stigma in Judea and Jerusalem. They were considered the hicks, the rubes, the backwaters, the hill people. All sorts of pejoratives were used against them. They were considered this from the country, not that educated, not that bright, not that sophisticated, definitely not cultured and refined and sophisticated. They were the rubes. But they were the ones who were the witnesses of the resurrection. Along with the women, no story make-believe story in the ancient world would rest the historicity of an event upon the testimony of women, yet that's what the gospel authors do. The women were the first witnesses to the resurrection at a time when women had almost no rights in society, at a time when women's testimony was not allowed in court. Jesus, in his amazing wisdom and the way he turns everything upside down, he says, oh, we're going to show the world. The first witnesses are going to be women. And that was actually one of the earliest attacks against Christianity by one of the Roman philosophers. He says, you know, aside from just the stupidity of this whole concept of a resurrection, we have to honestly understand this. It's based on the testimony of historical women. Therefore, dismiss it outright. That was the first attack against Christianity was, oh, it's based on the testimony of women. So you have women, and then you have the hicks, the rubes, the backwaters, the disciples. They were not respected or educated or eloquent men, but they were the ones who boldly, repeatedly enthusiastically and convincingly and with great conviction says, Jesus is alive. And it's changed the entire world. The disciples did not preach, suffer, and die for something they merely believed. They suffered torture and execution for something they experienced. Each of the disciples, with the exception of the apostle John, was executed for their allegiance to a resurrected Jesus. John was not executed for his faith, but he was severely tortured numerous times into his adult life as he continued to talk about Jesus. Later in his life, in one of his letters to to Christians, he wrote this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Do you hear how many times we have seen, we have heard, we have beheld? John was an eyewitness. Many of the scriptures in the New Testament were written within about 25 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. We know one of those letters was written easily within 22 years, uh, actually probably about 21 to 20 21 years after Jesus' resurrection. It's the Apostle Paul's letter to, the, the first letter to the church in Corinth. 
And he writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, uh, one of the names of, of Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So in A.D. 53, 54, maybe as late as A.D. 55, Jesus was crucified most likely in A.D. 33, there are still probably hundreds of people alive out of those 500. Paul is saying this, he's laying down the gauntlet. I am passing on to you what I received from those who were there. You can take my words, but if you can't, if, you, if you're not going to listen to what I say, go talk to them yourselves. Go talk to the ones who saw Jesus and heard Jesus, who, who communed with Jesus, who were there, who were the witnesses. They will tell you the exact same thing. You see, so the testimony of Jesus is not the foundation of a few hysterical women. It's not the testimony of a few backwater rubes. It's hundreds of people who saw something they could not explain other than that Jesus conquered death. And those stories of transformation continue to this day. Contrary to every other person of renown in history, the influence and the impact of Jesus has exponentially increased as time goes by. The growth is exponential. No other religion or religious figure or philosopher or thinker or moralist or anything of any other period in history has gained more followers the farther from his or her death. But Jesus has. The real physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the only possible explanation for the existence of the church and the work of Jesus' followers in things such as compassion, education, science, and everything else. Speaking of compassion, a brand new study just came out recently from the Barna Research Group. In their evaluation of the amount of money given to philanthropy worldwide, Christians in Christian philanthropy accounts for 70% of American charitable giving this current year, 2022. The year's not over yet. Already, Christians in America have given more than $300 billion to helping people and alleviating suffering. Those numbers are greater than what the U.S. government gives to fight global poverty worldwide. That's what the followers of Jesus are doing in this world. Those stories continue today. Lives still change. If you look at some of the headlines, there will be a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of uh, hand-wringing. There will be a lot of uh, sensationalistic headlines. Oh, Christianity in America is dying. Oh, Christianity in Britain is dying. For the first time, 
Christians are now no longer the majority representation of population in the United Kingdom. They fell below 50% this year. First time in hundreds of years, probably over a thousand years for Britain. In Christianity, it's the same way. But there's a small tidbit that those sensationalistic headlines omit. What they omit is a very important distinction. Cultural Christianity is dying. Yes. Cultural Christianity is the, is the, is the mindset we say, ah, I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. It is saying, oh, my great-grandmother belonged to such and such a church, therefore I belong to that church as well. Or it's saying, I'm a Christian because, well, I'm not Jewish and I'm not Muslim, therefore I must be Christian. That level of faith is rightfully, thankfully dying. Because a Christian is one who belongs to Christ. It is not just one who claims the name of Christ. It is one who belongs to Jesus through faith, through confession, a repentance lifestyle. It is through baptism of a dying to the old identity of life and a rising to a new identity of life. And this kind of Christianity, not cultural, not conventional, not, 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 um, not societal, but rather convictional, convictional Christianity is alive, healthy, thriving, and increasing in America. Which makes sense because most other structures of the world are falling, falling down and they're falling apart. But Jesus lives Therefore, Jesus still loves, Jesus still forgives, Jesus still heals, Jesus still calls, Jesus still commissions. Jesus is still alive and at work. Convictional Christianity, those who take faith in Jesus seriously are doing really well. But Jesus lives. But does he live in you? Are you part of that more cultural Christian perspective? Being a part of a church is a good thing to do. My identity with Christ is, is right there with my identity as, insert whatever it may be there. It's just one part of life. It's just one thing I do to occupy my social calendar. Or is it where the core root of your identity stems from? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead in sin, but now I'm alive in Christ. Because of what Jesus did in the resurrection in coming to new life, he has brought new life into me, and I owe him everything. Therefore, he will have my heart, my mind, my soul, my body. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That's the connection. That's the difference faith makes. That's what it means to, to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. His spirit is within us drawing us closer to the Father, empowering us to, to overcome the weaknesses of the flesh, calling us into the fellowship of loving one another, even though that's difficult. 
calling us to serve one another, comforting us in our sorrow, convicting us of our own personal sin, connecting us with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you need to take that step towards convictional Christianity and shedding the cultural Christianity, the steps are easy. Profess your faith in Jesus. And by professing faith in Jesus as Lord, we are automatically saying that if Jesus is Lord, nothing else is. It's a repentant lifestyle. It's a continual evaluation of looking to Jesus and how he wants us to live in our relationship with ourselves and the world and others. Maybe you have not taken the step of baptism yet. Baptism is an essential step because Jesus commanded it. It pictures the work of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it places that power of Jesus over us as well. So take that step. Maybe it's you believe these things, you live for Jesus, but your faith has been timid. Now is the time to shed the timidity. It's time to speak up. Time to live out. Time to live boldly. Speak lovingly, compassionately, gently, but clearly about Jesus being Lord because the resurrection changes everything, including us.